Good news. My new book is finally here. It's called Handbook for the Heartbroken, A Woman's Path from Devastation to Rebirth, and you can order it now wherever books are sold. I wrote this book after the five-year span between 2016 and 2020 when I experienced serial heartbreaks that rocked literally every area of my life, my health, relationships, money, career, social status, and even my very sense of self. And along the way, I really got to experience firsthand how dysfunctional our culture's relationship is to loss. I saw how we live in a heartbreak illiterate world that's obsessed with success and shackled with isolation and ignorant of how valuable our suffering can be for our growth and our evolution not only as individuals, but also as a collective. So this book expands the conversation around loss beyond just breakups and bereavement, although we definitely cover those too, in order to include falls from grace of all kinds, personal, professional, and collective. So whether you're experiencing hardship now, or know you have past hurts that are holding you back in certain ways and still need healing, this book is here to support you. It's also a great book to gift to clients, family members, friends, just other women in your world who are going through a challenging time. It will show you that it's only through fully turning toward your heartbreak with support, courage, and compassion that you can heal. So within the loving pages of this book, you will have full permission to fall apart and slowly, organically find your way back to greater wholeness. I'm truly excited to share this with you. It was not a joy to live this journey, but it really was a joy to write it. And you can find it again, wherever books are sold and the audio version of the book is available as well. If you would like some gifts to accompany you on your heartbreak journey, you can get those at handbookfortheheartbroken.com. Those are free. Whenever you order books, you can just send in your invoice or your receipt and we'll send you those accompanying gifts. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Sarah Avon Stover, host of Truth, Love, and Beauty. I'm an author, internal family systems practitioner, and teacher of women's yoga, meditation, and spirituality, who's built a long career since the early 2000s to be exact, in supporting women to cultivate greater psycho-spiritual wholeness and, in turn, to come home to themselves. My dedication to women and to the upliftment of the feminine at large has been a lifelong one. From growing up as the second oldest of four sisters in a Connecticut suburb of New York City, to studying at an Ivy League all-women's college, all the way up to today. And the very things I support women with mirror the struggles that I've had. Things like doubting, pushing, perfecting, hating, and yes, at times, even hurting myself. Yet I found, and I have a sense that because you're here, you have too, that these very wounds and pain points can become openings for profound healing, growth, and spiritual insight. I created this podcast in service of honoring just this, this sacred healing journey that we women are on. It was born out of my own desire to hear Dharma talks, which are what the Buddhist tradition calls wisdom teachings, through the distinct lens and voice of the sacred feminine. 
Here, I'll share these very talks, along with rich conversations with leading thinkers and luminaries about all facets of the feminine spiritual journey. Plus, this podcast highlights three of the core values we must embrace on the feminine path, truth, love, and beauty. Values which we all need more of during this tumultuous time in history. I'm so happy you're here. Let's dive in. Hello, friends. It's good to be here with you again. Life has been full, so I haven't been sharing my usual two podcast episodes each month. I'm lightening my load and have just reduced it just to one episode a month. So I'm embracing the mottos of quality over quantity and less is more. And we'll see if I'm able to bring two again in the future. But for now, here is my podcast for the month of April. And one of the themes I've worked with a lot in both my personal life as well as in my private IFS practice over the past years is the theme of healing from narcissistic abuse and codependency. And the flip side of that is learning how to cultivate a secure, healthy relationship, first with oneself and then ultimately with an intimate partner. This is a deep process. Those of you who are in it or have been in the past, you know that. And it is an important one. Again, it's something that I support a lot of women with. It's, It's very common. So to help us go deeper into this exploration as a larger community, I've invited to join us today, Carista Luminaire, who has been nicknamed the Narcissism Whisperer. So Carista has more than 40 years experience as a counselor, consultant, educator to individuals, couples, and families. In her private counseling practice, she integrates her lifelong research on how our early bonding patterns profoundly impact our self-identity and adult relationship dynamics. Her powerful life-changing programs bring participants into direct experience and embodiment of their true self. Carista has developed a comprehensive holistic parenting methodology, a leading-edge evolutionary leadership program, and a practical approach for couples to rewire insecure bonding into a secure functioning relationship. After graduating from Harvard University in psychology and social relations in 1978 and completing her postgraduate degrees, Carista pioneered educational programs on early attachment that focused on preventing and repairing childhood developmental trauma. She has been certified in both the Gottman Method and Stan Tatkin's PACT Institute. As president of Luminary Leadership Institute, she coaches leaders how to be pro-relational. Carista is a mother and stepmother and has used her attachment approach with her own family and lifelong relationships, including with her beloved partner, Lion Goodman, with great success. You can find Carista online at confusedaboutlove.com. 
and healingnarcissismandcodependency.com. In our conversation today, Carista and I speak about the four main attachment styles, which she calls love styles, how to heal your attachment style to become secure if you had a traumatic or wounding experience in childhood with your primary caregivers. We talk about why narcissism needs to be explored on a spectrum and how low-level narcissism can be healed while more extreme levels of narcissism cannot, ways to recover from codependency and to reclaim your voice and sovereignty in intimate relationships if you haven't done that in the past. We also talk about how to apply these pro-relational tools outside of intimate relationships into the workplace, our friendships, and with other family members, and much more. If you are wanting to experience a healthy, secure, intimate relationship or just more fulfilling relationships at large, I know you'll receive a lot from Carista's wisdom today. Enjoy. All right. Welcome, Carista. Thank you. Happy to be here. It's great to have you. And we always start our conversations here with a personal check-in. Okay. And so I'd love for you to share with us where you're joining us from today, as well as how you're doing at the levels of body, heart, and mind. Aha. Uh-huh. I'm from the Bay Area. I'm up in Petaluma, California, North Bay, San Francisco. And body, heart, and mind. Body's good. Had a good meditation this morning, connected to myself. Mind's a bit busy. Just came out of a minor migraine headache, so a little, little, uh, Jittery in the mind, concerned about the world. Yeah. Reading the news definitely puts a little bit bit of weight in the heart every day and concerned about a lot of suffering out there. I hear you, and I relate to that, and I know our listeners can too. And in that vein, one of the questions I've been asking our podcast guests for the past couple of years is, and we're two years into the pandemic and things are lessening on that front, but right as they're lessening on the pandemic front, we have the the war in Ukraine coming in and, yeah. and also it's everything that's happening with climate change, which you know that you're, you must be experiencing living in the Bay Area. Really? And so I'm wondering if there are certain practices or experiences or things or mindsets that have been supporting you during these times of increasing um, uncertainty and distress? Yeah. I find that I don't even get out of bed in the morning without doing certain practices, connecting to my breath, to appreciating where I do feel safe and secure in life, connecting to the light. I have a meditation connecting to my higher nature. Um, and I also combine it with actually letting myself feel what I'm really feeling often first, you know, just, I, I have what I call the, the witching hour of my first hour of the day before I really kick in. That's where usually my anxieties or concerns come to me all my, my whole life. My friend just recently said, why don't you call it the transformational hour? It's <laughs> like, that's a, that's a good reframe. Um, so I, I let myself feel and really honor kind of the human emotions and then that's once I 
include them, then I start to, you know, focus more on what more of the positive realities that help me realize that too. You know, it's an and both and um, lots to be grateful for living this part of the world, even though there's climate change for all of us, wherever we are, climate change, anxieties and concerns. So it's a balance of including the truth of what I feel and then allowing those feelings to focus on more positive Mm. realities and people and making sure I get in nature, surround myself in nature. Yeah. I I love that both and approach. Yeah. I really, I keep nature close at hand. Like I have orchids literally pouring over my computer here and I'm, you know, make sure that I have beautiful imagery in my house. That's warm and inspiring to just help my, my mind feel that too. Yeah. I'm admiring, listeners can't see this, but I'm admiring the the plant and your background and the flowers. And, and I relate to that too. I have a, just make sure I have a plant in every home, every room of my home. Yeah. And we're here today to talk about relationships and attachment styles and just the various challenges and also opportunities that we experience in these, in these areas. Yes. And the focus of your work is on attachment styles and how early bonding patterns impact our identity, our adult relationship dynamics. And I'd love for you to just break this down for us first by starting with how early bonding patterns do impact these things. Yes. So the neuroscience of relationship and the latest attachment work has really clarified that our relationship with our primary attachment figures, it's not always just our parents, assuming we have two and many people don't or didn't. Um, It also includes surrogate parents, adoptive parents, um, step parents, grandparents, siblings who raised us, some people had nannies. So those who we entrusted to care for us, to help us feel safe and secure, is really what we're talking about in terms of attachment. It's the bond with that prime with one or more primary attachment figures. And and there's four attachment styles that have been clarified, starting with John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth in the 1950s. They really looked at what the dynamic was for children who really thrived had at least one or more secure attachment figures in their life that really were their go-to person to feel they could be held and heard, understood and cared for. Now, many of us didn't have that secure attachment and we had parents who, due to their wounding, never learned what love is, how to be, you know, really care for a child because they weren't cared for ended up having what we call insecure attachment. And there's three insecure attachment styles that have very clear distinctions. In other words, when we feel distressed, when we don't feel safe and secure, what what happens to our brain, what happens to our sense of self? And so I can break those four styles down if you'd like. Yeah, that was going to be my next next question. You you, you, You call them the four love styles. Is that right? Well, I and my partner, Lion Goodman, we have... Um, created the word love styles because it's just more user-friendly and it's more relatable. In the attachment work, they call it the attachment styles. So if I say attachment styles, love styles, it's the same thing. Yeah. So do you want me to go into them? Yes, that'd be great. 
So the first one is the secure attachment style, the, the secure love style. And that basically leaves the child and or the adult, because we're playing out these, these dynamics in our adult intimacy um, relationships, with this sense that um, I feel safe. I trust you're here for me. You love me. I'm lovable. I'm loved. And I'm a priority for you. And the general feeling it leaves the child or the adult partner um, is I trust you, I feel honored, I feel peaceful. The connection with us feels harmonious at least 80% of the time, minimum. Four out of five interactions in general, the research says. That's at the baseline. Of course, everyone has stress. We get triggered Parents have more than one child. They have to work. They have, you know, emotions. Everyone fights. Secure couples or secure relationships include fighting. It's just that the two-party system knows how to fight well. We can talk about that later on. So it's not a perfect state of security. It's a fluid state. But the general feeling is you're my go-to person. You know, the you're there to soothe my distress. You're there to empower my true self. And you want my, you care about my security. You care about my safety. So there was a, a just a seminal uh, study that was actually two, uh, back in the day when I heard about it from my mentor, over 20 years of research, over 2,000 studies combined, the number one criteria for happy, healthy, longstanding marriages or partnerships were they actually made relieving each other's distress the top priority. That's what love really feels like to a child. I'm crying. I'm needing you. You're my go-to person to, to help me come back to wellness. And you're there to celebrate my, my greatness and my true nature. So that's the secure attachment style. The other three insecure attachment styles or love styles are called insecure anxious love style, insecure avoidant love style, and insecure traumatic love style. There's some other names out there in the research, but that's what we call them in general. The insecure anxious, which is the dominant criteria, that is when one gets triggered, one goes into insecurity. And that's all happening in the brain. We can talk about later. And when one gets triggered, one either goes into insecure anxious or insecure avoidant love style. Those are the two main reactions when triggered, when we leave being in, in, in the sense of security. And the insecure anxious is exactly like it sounds. The person's left anxious that the connection has disappeared or it feels unsettling. Like, And the pr- primary preoccupation that creates the anxiety is the fear of abandonment. It can be emotional abandonment or physical abandonment. The feeling is uh, you don't see me. You don't want the connection. That those are the beliefs. You don't care about me. I'm not important to you. Um, I don't know if I matter to you. And the general feelings are anxiety, as as it says, frustration, often despair. If it's a constant sense of abandonment, uh, and the and the anxious tend to get angry. Sometimes they're called insecure, anxious, angry, and their main behavior is they pursue when the connection is threatened. So they're often called insecure, anxious pursuers. Um, they complain, they provoke, they escalate. They're more the, the ones that you can go, where are you knocking at the door? You're disappearing or I need you. And I, when I get triggered, I'm in, that, I'm in that particular category. I call myself a recovering insecure, anxious or pretty well recovered. The other reaction that's very common, the other love style is insecure avoidant love style. 
And usually they're a plug and play. For those of us who do couples work, myself included, that's those are usually the dynamics we see in the couples therapy session. The insecure, anxious, and insecure avoidant, they have very different needs. And the insecure avoidant love style is just like the name sounds. When triggered, bye, see you later, I'm withdrawing, you know, and the general sense is I don't need anyone right now. This is just, I'm flooded. I feel you don't value me. I'm not good enough. I can't get it right. It's hopeless. I'll take care of myself. I'll stay inside my shell. Underneath that avoidance is the fear of rejection. There's a feeling that they can't, they, they don't feel who they are is being valued. So their tendency is to protect themselves by withdrawing, ignoring, shutting down. They're often going to their heads. They get logical, uh, suppress their feelings hold back. And the senses don't disturb me. They're the ones that shut the door energetically. But underneath that is this feeling of shame that they're not enough. There's a kind of, they're depressed, they're hopeless and confused. And then the third insecure love style, I'll I'll just say very quickly, is the insecure traumatic. Some people call it insecure disorganized. It means it's usually you have one of the two I just mentioned, insecure anxious or insecure avoidant, and an additional complication, which is my primary attachment figures when I was younger, or you, my adult attachment figure, are traumatizing me. What does that mean? It means most of the time I don't feel safe. You're scary most of the time or all the time. You know, I feel in danger with you. I'm going to be punished if I don't behave correctly. And it's often children with alcoholic parents where there's an, and or there's some kind of verbal or physical abuse, constant rage, walking on eggshells chronically. It's a feeling of I'm just, I'm frightened, you know, uh, I don't know what I did wrong. And the general feeling is a constant state of feeling threatened, desperate, terrified, uncertain. And it leaves the nervous system in a state of chronic disorganization. Um, and, and how do we know someone's got insecure trauma with one of the other two underneath it is when triggered, they usually go into a disassociated reaction. There's kind of an overreaction, illogical exploding with emotion or deep, deep withdrawal for long periods of time. Um, and the, there's a paralyzing or collapsing or frozen feeling for the withdrawers, kind of a high escalation rage for the anxious types. And usually the reaction is disproportionate to what's happening in real time. Then we know the person's got either some kind of relationship trauma historically or in the acute situation with the person. So those mm-hmm. are the four attachment styles. And you also talk about, um, you also have three other classifications of pro-relational, non-relational, and anti-relational. Yeah. It's just another lens to kind of look at, like when I'm working with a client or I'm even reflecting on myself, um, what's going on. So when one is, this is more based on the neuroscience, excuse me, I'm just going to take a little sip of tea here. So the neuroscience, I'm going to make this very simple, explains how we react through the three parts of the brain. So the front of the brain, the neocortex, is primarily the pro-relational functions. And that's when we're not triggered. It's often what's called when I'm in green. I'm not reactive. You're feeling secure with me. I'm feeling secure with you. And the general, we have access when we're in the pro-relational part of our brain, the neocortex, to be, just like it says, be empathetic, understanding, collaborative. We want win-win solutions. We're listening. We're patient. 
there's a sense of mutual happiness, mutual sensitivity, mutual understanding. So that's pro-relational, green, green, quiet, no threatening behavior. As soon as we get threatened, it could be our partner just rolling their eyes, not responding to our comments, you know, getting angry, ignoring us. We can, depending on our inner state, we can go into a feeling of insecurity. That happens in the midsection of the brain, what's often called the amygdala. That's the fight or flight center. It's often called the kind of the, uh, it's like a smoke alarm and a fire alarm. And suddenly we go into fight or flight. Your behavior, you other person, behavior is feeling threatening. And I'm not sure if I'm feeling in danger or, you know, it's a passing feeling and we're not sure yet. We're kind of in yellow, like there's smoke, but not fire. And we're really not sure if you continue, then suddenly I'm going to go into an extreme insecure, avoidant, insecure, anxious reaction, either one. And that's when we become non-relational is the withdrawer and and anti-relational is really the anxious type because we usually get very aggressive. Where are you? Where are you? And we pursue and pursue. Sorry for the noise in the background. It's the garbage being picked up if you hear it. Um, the, there's a sense of, you know, when you look at the withdrawer, the insecure avoidant, they literally disappear, non-relational. You look at the, uh, the pursuer, the aggressive person, and they're going to go into... Um, being anti-relational because they're overwhelming. Are you there? I'm gonna ask, ask me the question. And there's another, there's a few other terms that you use, um, pro-relational, non-relational, and anti-relational. Can you just speak about the difference between those? Yes. So those criteria, it's another way of looking at how we react, is based primarily on the neuroscience of relationship data. And I'm going to simplify a very complex paradigm. So in the brain is divided base it's divided into many parts but there's three major parts the prefrontal lobes the neocortex and that's where we're pro relational when we're in the front part of our brain we're not triggered our focus our attention is there and that is usually because whoever we're in relationship with at any age we're feeling safe and secure with them we're not feeling threatened we're feeling relaxed and there's Therefore, because we're in what we often call green metaphorically, just like go, everything's you know clear to go, we're resting in ourselves. And therefore, we have the ability to be pro-relational. We're not triggered. We're not threatened. We're not in insecurity. We're not hijacked. So we have the ability to be empathetic, to appreciate, to go for mutuality, mutual understanding, mutual sensitivity. We can listen. We can be patient. We're, there's a sense of... Uh, mutual happiness and the ability to collaborate, go for a win-win solution. So that's why we call it pro-relational. When we suddenly get threatened, we get hijacked, 
the midsection of the brain in the limbic system, the amygdala, will fire off in a nanosecond. We'll get hijacked out of our rational pro-relational senses and we'll go into fight or flight. The person's behavior suddenly feels threatening. It's very, very quick. And it could be a rolling of the eyes, feeling discounted, like our you know parent discounted us, or you know a, a, an actual verbal aggression, or something verbally or non-verbally where we suddenly go, "Hey, I don't feel safe with you," and we'll go into one of the insecure attachment styles. The insecure anxious will go into more of the escalating behavior. Where are you going? Where are you going? We and they can become very attacking, critical, confronting, and that's what we call anti-relational. It's against the pro-relational. It's the opposite. In other words, we are pursuing and we're aggressing verbally, energetically. And the insecure avoidant love style or attachment style will go into, I'm triggered by, see you later, I'm withdrawing. And that's what we call non-relational. In other words, we're shutting the door. We're not relating to you. It's non-relational. In a sense, they're synonymous. We just needed to make a distinction. Anti-relational, you could say the avoidance anti-relational, and you could say the anxious is non-relational. But the, the real distinction is we want to really learn from our partner what we need to feel safe and secure. We need to be able to disclose where the partner's behavior feels threatening because it's in everyone's best interest to be in, a, in the pro-relational functions because that's where love flows truth flows understanding flows when we're hijacked we're usually in defensiveness and the ability to be relational is compromised i want to take a short break from today's conversation to let you know about an upcoming retreat i'm leading this summer in a very magical region in the southwest part of france And this is the first time I've offered an in-person week-long retreat in over four years. And it's also the the first retreat I've led in Europe. And I'm very much looking forward to gathering with all of you in person. While meeting online is wonderful, there really is no replacement for the transmission that happens in person and the accelerated healing and insight that can happen with that. So this retreat will be taking place from August 29th to September 3rd at a retreat center called Le Moulin, and it's one that I've heard about through colleagues, students, teachers of my own. I've heard incredible things about it. It's a center devoted exclusively to meditation and contemplative studies, so it's really conducive to just dropping deeply into ourselves. And I've been wanting to go there for many years. So there's really nothing like a week-long retreat with other women in a beautiful area of the world to reset, realign, just digest our lives, to gain clarity and calm internally. Our days will be filled with meditation, women's yin and slow flow yoga, internal family systems, inquiry, nature walks, ample time for rest, self-care, journaling, as well as some group work and, of course, just delicious organic meals cooked for you. So this is a powerful time to reset our nervous systems. We'll unplug from technology. We'll spend extended periods in silence each day. And all of this will help you to feel more deeply connected to yourself and those around you, 
more access to your inner resources so that you can return to your life just feeling more refreshed and renewed and inspired. You can learn more about this retreat and join us at womensinsightretreat.com. That's womensinsightretreat.com. And now back to today's conversation. And so we have these different these different ways of classifying ourselves and our people we're in relationship with. And then we get to the question, okay, so now what? So and we all want to heal our relationship styles and to to be able to come into a secure attachment if we didn't have that as children to be able to to have that as adults in our primary relationships um especially yeah especially if there was trauma in our childhoods so how how can we start to do do this healing work yeah well first is to be aware of the partner you're dancing with and to understand your own love style and their love style. I have that on my website, a quick quiz. You can also find other ones on the internet because one needs to know where their vulnerability is, particularly when they're triggered. And to, um, to I say for people who haven't chosen a partner to really make sure that in your interviewing process that the person is interested in this secure attachment approach to connecting because basically what it says is we're both committed to learn how to create safe, greater safety and security, which includes our childhood wounding issues. And we both are invested in learning how to report in pro-relational ways where you others' behavior feels threatening or not. Now, if you're in a partnership where it's you're already very deeply wired into some insecure attachment dynamics... Again, it requires both of you wanting to do the work to rewire. All these behaviors can be rewired, even early childhood relationship programming. I know myself, I've had a tremendous amount of relationship trauma, sexual abuse, all kinds of deep, deep trauma in my 66 years. And I can say with conviction, trauma can be healed. One has to find the right healers and do the inner work to do that, of which there's many everywhere, you know, depending on what what your particular interest is, there's someone that can help you with attachment rewiring. Um, at the very least, you want to make sure your partner wants to do that inner work with you. And if they can't, or they don't want to, or they're resistance, there is a lot one can do themselves in terms of how you let your partner affect you. Even if it means you learn to walk out of the room because, you know, staying in the room, you're going to rant and rage and have a temper tantrum. Or, you know, you start to find your voice and speak up and establish some boundaries if you feel you've been complying and allowing yourself to be threatened in unhealthy ways. Um, so there's, you know, many angles to approach rewiring. And, you know, you, you call your work confused about love. Can you say more about that? Why, why, why that name? Well, I was in a major relationship crisis back in the day, and um, I had an epiphany one day after working with a number of clients and being in a particular training with very awake people. And um, I realized what does everyone share in common here is that they're confused about love, what love is and what love isn't. 
which seems obvious, but when I really ask people to give the criteria about what love is, it's actually there's very there's a lot of ignorance out there. So therefore, we don't know what to look for. And also the sense that people are confused about love, myself included, with even a very privileged background with parents who intended to love me. Um, in the best way they knew how, they really missed a lot of factors just because of their background. And um, I realized I am I have to learn for myself and then wanting to pass forward to others, what are, what are the criteria of what love is and what it isn't? Because many of us who had love mixed with trauma or love mixed with some kind of threatening behavior, insecurity and mild range, moderate, severe range of, you know, feeling threatened by, by primary attachment figures and partners in life. We actually are left subconsciously with the, with the belief and the experience that love is mixed with threat, threatening behavior. You know, I had a rageaholic dad, bless him. I know he loved me deeply, but he, due to his own tragedies in life, losing a mother early, he would rage rage at everything. I mean, even not finding the car keys. As a child, it was very frightening. And it really, you know, I created a lot of adaptive strategies as a highly sensitive person as well. And so, you know, I my first partner, who I love to this day, I chose the opposite of dear like man. And I thought, oh, I haven't chosen my father. You know, it came with its own challenges. Um, but then I, you know, through through different periods, I would subconsciously choose men that had a bit of a temperament because I needed to find my voice subconsciously. Don't treat me like that. Don't relate to me like that. And that had its own developmental benefit to find my voice. Um, but some of these, you know, I, I realized as I studied the neuroscience and attachment that love healthy love has very distinct criteria it's 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 safe it's predictable it there's a sense of peace of warmth you know of being nurtured of positive connection whereas the confusion about love says i have a connection when i look at that i the practitioner might look at that connection or look at you know listen to my friends suffering in their partnership that connection has a lot of negativity has a lot of trauma bonding it's a connection but it's a negative connection we don't know love is supposed to feel positive at least 80 plus percent of the time um you know the sense of feeling encouraged uh both partners wanting to repair when they fight so there's qualities of what love is and you know what love isn't uh, kind of warlike brain versus a loving brain, unpredictable, judging, critical, withdrawing, escalating, aggression, suppressing. These are more criteria if they're the dominant feeling of what love isn't. And most people are confused how to make those distinctions and what to do to optimize, you know, a loving brain, what what love is, secure attachment. One of the things that you've mentioned, you know, just now and a little bit earlier, just one of those things is is repairing after after conflict or an argument, and can you speak about why quick repairs are so important and how to do that when you're in conflict, when you're triggered and overwhelmed? Yes, this is a really important understanding that I wish I had had in my earlier years. Um, I may have chosen different partners if I understood a lot of these criteria I'm talking about because I, you know, endured a lot of love mixed with uh, threatening behavior. Um, the we we say that those of us in, in the neuroscience attachment work that secure attached couples they fight 
They just know how to fight well, as I said in the beginning. What does that mean? It means that when I get triggered and hijacked, which can happen in a nanosecond, no matter how much I've meditated in the morning or whatever for whatever reason, you have provoked me and I subconsciously got hijacked. I'm committed to repair our rupture as quickly as I can. So I, if I'm the cause of it, optimally, I'd be the one to lead it. But in a two-party system where we're both each other's allies trying to optimize secure attachment, secure love, then whoever can get online first to lead the repair does that. And we have a commitment as a secure attached couple to actually receive the other person's bid to repair even if we're not ready. And so part of the understanding of how to repair is person knocks on the door, I'm ready to repair. I'm not, I'm still triggered. And by the way, I'm needing space because I feel if I start to try to understand you now, I'm just going to, I have too much anger. I'm, I don't trust myself. I'm going to unleash on you. So I need another half an hour and I'm going to use that time to actually go for a walk and regulate myself, suffer, regulate myself with the intention to get myself back from red or yellow, you know, alert, non-relational, anti-relational position feeling states to pale yellow or green as soon as possible. And we both commit to do that. We, whatever time we take, we both commit to do what we can to get ourselves back down to pale yellow or green. Why? Because if we try to process it in an escalated red state, we're in warring brain where you don't feel like my ally and I don't trust my ability to be pro-relational, then we're just going to go in these vicious long processing cycles. So each person needs to be able to report how soon they can come back and there's an agreement how to do that, and that the need for space is not to punish, but it's actually to actually resource oneself, whatever one needs to do, call a friend, uh, take a walk, eat some protein to get back online to try to resolve what happened. And sometimes it means I don't have it in me. I'm too tired tonight. I'm just going to get in a fight with you. Let's hug each other. We know we love each other. Tomorrow's a new day. Let's set a time to do it and we can be productive. So it's the intention to repair as soon as possible. Why? Even if you don't want to, it's imagine, you don't need to imagine. Think of all the times you're triggered where you you actually, your day is ruined because you're hijacked in red. Your creativity, your sense of connection to the goodness of life. So do it for yourself. Lead first, receive the bid just so that you can get back to green. Because when we're hijacked in red, we're in what we call warring brain and everything is filtered. Life's filtered through that feeling and our nervous system's jangled. And so it's in our best interest to get back to green repair just for our own well-being, much less for our partner or our children or our colleagues or anyone else we're in, triggered with. Yeah. It's just, it's like a fundamental act of self-care. Yep. Yeah. And care for the other. Yeah. And what being an emotionally intelligent and mature adult is is we know how to self-regulate and how to self-soothe when another person can't hold us we know what those practices are and then we actually are invested in making sure our impact on the other person we're caring about how they're distressed particularly for the cause of it that we care about them too that's called co-regulation we're actually regulating together so we we really are invested when we look when secure love to care about our impact of causing threat or distress in the other person, even if it's their childhood wound where they're projecting on us, we want to care about that. 
And some other, it seems like some other ways that, that you talk about creating this secure connection is the three nonverbal love languages and how they can be used also to quickly bring you back to, to a positive loving connection. What, what are those, what are those three nonverbal love languages? Yes. So the, the neuroscience has also in, in attachment work has shown us that a lot of our triggers are happening non-verbally, not just what we're saying. So that's because the first two years, two to three years before we, each of us as, as infants and toddlers were growing, we actually didn't have words to explain our, our sense of safety and security. We used crying. We used you know, temper tantrums to get attention when we felt insecure or distressed. And we were obviously happy. When we were happy, we were feeling secure and safe. And um, you can read it on a, on a child, on an infant. You can feel it, particularly those who are need attuned, they can feel it just at the most subtle level. And therefore, those are the three nonverbal love languages that the attachment figures, parents and or attachment figures that aren't parents, are actually communicating love to the child are through the eyes, I see you, through the tone of voice, I hear you, and through the touch, I feel you. So when a child's crying in the middle of the night, an infant, and they're needing, or they've, you know, stumbled on the playground, <clears throat> or their siblings hit them, or they burn themselves, or their diapers need changing, and they call out, the secure loving parent will use all three of those nonverbal love languages in order to soothe the child. Hi, honey, I got you. You know, if you could see me now, the eyes are loving, the tone of voice is soothing, the body language is holding the child close in a soft embrace. And the child goes, ha, 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 I'm safe. That's, I'm being co-regulated. Now we know as adults, this is a very profound data point, that we never outgrow that need to be co-regulated. That the, that the healthiest children, the most independent children, have a go-to person, at least one attachment figure, that will co-regulate them. The bully on the playground, I got you, honey. I'm going to protect you. We're going to do something about that. They have someone to go to. And as adults, the most independent adults are the ones who have a go-to person. Maybe if you're not in a relationship, it's a girlfriend, a guy friend, a therapist, a sister, a brother, a grandparent, someone who will hold you through your distress. And a lot of that is happening non-verbally. What is it? We want to be seen. If the eyes are, I hear you, but the eyes are looking angry, the child's not going to trust the parent. If we say to our partner, I care what you're feeling, but the voice sounds angry or the body language is rigid, it doesn't matter what we say, it goes out the window. The nonverbals are speaking much more. So 90% of what I'm reading with clients is what's going on nonverbally. I can see when they pull back from each other. I can see the grimaces of disdain or contempt. I can see the eye rolling. I can see the body language closing down. And I stop the session because at that point they're hijacked. And we're doing that with each other all the time. That, that, that person who rolls their eyes, it's like, you're not caring about my feelings. What do you mean? I haven't said anything. But the eye rolling is completely devalued, what they're saying. So that's the three nonverbal love languages. Eyes, tone of voice, body language. Hmm. And so kind of shifting gears out of more, more, more of a general look at relationships and now into some specific dynamics, 
I, one of the reasons why I reached out to you to have you join this podcast is that I've, I've, I've become aware of your, your work over the years around narcissism and codependency. And that's something that I have in my past that I've, that I've healed from in my past. And now a lot of women that I work with are either in that dynamic or healing from it. It can be very damaging on a number of levels and, and you, you're, you've also been called the narcissist whisperer, which I'm intrigued about. <laughs> so first, can you define for us what, what, what are, what is codependency and narcissism sure. and perhaps give some examples or an example of what those look like in action? Yes. Um, I, call myself a recovering, quite recovered again, a codependent. And uh, my partner, my beloved partner calls himself a recovering narcissist, but not personality disorder. So that, that brings the distinction before I even get into those two different criteria. We have any trait, any personality trait, narcissism, codependency, depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, whatever it is. Well, that's a little different. But those kind of general themes that we're hearing out there, there's mild spectrum behavior, I'm a little bit self-absorbed. That's more the the, the narcissist. Um, moderate. Well, you know, a lot of the time I can be self-absorbed, but I have some ability to care for you. And then severe spectrum, which is I'm primarily dominant in that behavior and there's not much else. And then there's, I even go a further criteria, kind of severe goes into personality disorder, where it's a fixed, very hardwired, dominant archetype of that, all the traits. And those are harder to heal. Sometimes need medication with counseling, and um, and sometimes they're very um, chronic and hard to to heal. So, narcissism has a bad rap out there. Um, geopolitically, we all have our different whatever side you're on, whatever tribe you're in. You can find those that you would call extreme in that regard. But narcissism in general is. The, the the relationship style, the way the person relates is self-absorbed. Um, it's a sense of, I focus on my own needs and desires. I seek attention, approval, admiration as the main focus of my existence. I feel superior to other people. I don't care about others' feelings. It's a lack of empathy. Again, mild, moderate, or severe. The more one lacks empathy, caring about their impact on another, the more they are in the self-absorbed narcissistic behavior dynamic. And it's a sense of a one, you know, unilateral decisions. I decide what to do. You're secondary. I'm primary. Um, and the codependent is just the opposite. They're more self-sacrificing. Narcissism is more self-absorbing. Codependent, self-sacrificing. I'm second. Um, they're usually the great caretakers. They make great healers because they want to just give and give and give and caretake. And they find their value, usually they had a narcissistic attachment figure who made the attachment figure's needs were first. And the way they got love was to serve that attachment figure's needs by giving to you. And you're giving me a signal. My needs are secondary. Therefore, I learned that's what love is. And that's what my role in the family is. And that's what my role in relationship is. I get value being the one to caretake. And my needs are second. They have a tendency, codependents have a tendency to self-abandon themselves, their needs, their feelings. Um, they, they're very focused on the other's needs and there's a sense of, um, inferiority. You know, your, 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 your needs first, my needs second. Um, 
and it's very much other related so that, and they have, they have great empathy and they're very need attuned in general because that's how they learn to exist in the family system with one or both attachment figures. Again, there's spectrum. Um, my, my partner is the one who called me the narcissist whisperer because I work with a lot of high achieving people who are narcissistically wired. They're n- they, they never learn to be pro-relational. It's, it's a skill set. You have to have parents or attachment figures or someone important in your life that taught you how to love, how to care for another, how to be cared for. That that relationship is mutual needs, mutual sensitivity, mutual understanding. So, you know, whatever side of the dance one's in, usually the avoidant is often more in the narcissistic spectrum. In other words, they pull away from connecting. It's not safe. It was never safe to have anyone relate, care for them. So they learn to just take care of themselves and therefore they're more self-absorbed. In general, not always, the insecure, anxious are more codependent. They're so preoccupied, they feel so much of a need to feel their lovability is through being connected and being loved that they get very preoccupied and they'll do whatever it takes, self-sacrifice to get that connection, often in a lot of negative trauma bonding, whatever it takes to get that relationship. So it's it's inspiring that you and your partner are both recovering on different ends of that spectrum. Yeah. And did you get to that place of being recovered and being in relationship yeah. by like doing these exercises that you're suggesting around secure yeah. attachment? Or what does that what does that look like? Yeah. We created a whole body of work. It's a, a 10-week course we have on our website called Healing Narcissism and Codependency, where we're very transparent about what we went through those first five years we were together. Luckily, we had the attachment approach, it happened to be my specialty. Um, and he was open. And he, again, he was more like mild to moderate. When triggered, his greatest behavior was he could spend a day or two or three when we started dating, you know, just if he got triggered and we got in a fight, just self-regulating, doing his thing and feeling fine about it, where I would be highly anxious. When he learned what the state he put me in, well, also he would go into kind of, into this deep freeze withdrawal he really realized he had a lot of important feelings to be cared for, but he didn't know that he actually needed to get in touch with them. And I needed to create experiences for him to feel his needs and feelings were valued because as, as emotionally intelligent as he was when I met him in various ways, um, in a lot of men's work, community leader and such, there were places in his romantic relationships where he really didn't allow himself to feel he could open and be vulnerable with his feelings and needs in terms of um, the benefits of being in a relationship, of being interdependent with someone. He didn't even know that was something that he was missing to be held, to be heard, to be understood in a very deep way because of his childhood wounding. So, um, you know, that, that, and, and in learning to work with him and having been brought up with a father who was very narcissistic and working with a lot of men clients in particular who wanted to learn, they have, you know, the, the, the narcissism that's healable is that mild to moderate spectrum where it's just ignorance. I, my conditioning has left me non-relational and I want to learn how to be pro-relational. And that's what he wanted to do. Then I had to find my voice too, because I could easily get into the caregiver and with all the information I had play that role. And it was kind of like, what about me? You know, I had to remember what about me? And he had to remember what about you? So, you know, there was a lot of every, every incident, where we go into the historic patterns, 
is an opportunity for a couple to rewire. It's actually, I've often thought of making that a trademark for my work, incident by, we rewire incident by incident, because that's how it happens. It's not here, you're, you know, we can learn through awareness, we can read a book, you can learn through a teleseminar. The real rewiring happens actually in the moment we're triggered. Are we going to find a more pro-relational behavior within ourselves and with our partner that gives our neurology, our sense of selfhood, our beliefs, our feelings, something more pro-relational in behavior. And that's how we rewire. So we do it incident by incident. And, you know, we're still vulnerable when we're exhausted, overworking to default to our old insecure um, tendencies. And we have various agreements and practices to help each other or when the other's not available or we're hijacked to self-regulate ourselves. Mm-hmm. For, the, for the codependent, it's a lot about, don't am I abandoning myself? Am I, am I defaulting to a behavior where, you know, I'm not loving myself, it's not healthy for me, and I'm doing it anyhow. That's the, you know, that's the challenge of the codependent. To get that connection, I will, I will do something that's not healthy. I will do something harming myself or that's not self-loving because the connection is more important. And that the codependent has to realize, no, I actually have to go through a self-absorbed phase where I have to think of myself because I've abandoned myself. Sometimes we can become more self-absorbed in those earlier times of rewiring. And, and it's, you know, what about me? I'm going first because I've never been. So then we have to learn to rebalance. And then the self-absorbed person needs to practice. What about you? Oh, I just made a unilateral decision. I said, we're going to do this. We're not going to talk right now. I've got to say, how do you feel about it? What are your needs? Yeah. Yeah. Cause most, most of the people listening to this are, are women And I have a sense that most like you and myself tend to fall on the code, more codependent side of the dynamic. So the steps that that you're saying right now to take are to take that pause and, and really self-reflect question. Am I sacrificing myself here? Mm -hmm. Am I, am I kind of seeing this other person as superior to me, their needs superior to me? And am I abandoning myself? And if so, what, what am I needing here? How can I use my voice to advocate for my needs and say, what about me and have, and have my partner also start to self-reflect and see, yes, what about you? How can we make this work for you too? Am I getting that right? Beautiful summation. The one caveat I would say is if you are more the codependent, man or woman in general, I'd say subjectively, you know, eight, nine out of 10 women are more the codependent. We're the caretakers. We were born to nurture and caretake. Um, if we're in relationship, man or woman with someone who's more self-absorbed, if they're more in the moderate to severe spectrum, don't expect them to want to rewire unless they want to, they're not going to change their behavior and learn to be more caring, more empathetic of you, unless they say, I want to learn how to do that. That's one thing that, you know, I really assess when someone says they're in a dynamic with a partner, male or female with narcissism, are they going to want to learn to want to learn to be more loving man or woman? That's the key. And if they are justified in their superior approach and they don't want to do the work, then there's nothing you can do except change how they impact you internally and, you know, whether you can keep yourself well in the relationship. If they're open to learning, then you've got a great journey ahead. Yeah, that's an important distinction because there are going to be there are going to be a number of cases when it is more in that moderate to severe yeah. 
um, state, which, which was my experience and, and is a lot of with the women that I work with where sometimes just the healthiest thing to do is to walk away. And that that's the act of self-care. Exactly. Just say yeah. no, because they're not saying yes. They want <clears throat> they have to want to, you know, one of the tests is there's, you know, there's this notion and there's books and internet on secure attachments, you know, and I want to travel that path with you so that we both commit to lowering our threatening behavior. Me too. And I want to learn how to do that with you. Do you want to learn how to do that with me? And if they're disinterested, then it's not going to happen, you know, or go to counseling and really look at this. I, you know, your behavior scares me. Does that matter to you? And if they dismiss that, then expect yourself to continue having that experience. That's more the insecure trauma bonding. That's relationship trauma. If that's the dominant feeling. Now, if the person you know, gets hijacked and they go into anger, high anger, but then they apologize and they repair and they're in therapy or they're in men's group or women's groups and they're working on it. And you feel like there's, they're changing. They're actually rewiring. It's happening less and less. And there's a lot of goodness, then that's worth investing. in. if you feel like that person's got a lot of other good qualities, the reason why, you know, Lion, I love, he role models this, this theme of, you know, calling himself a recovering narcissist, which is tricky because of the kind of the, the negative connotation is that he really has shows that it, it, his interest in learning to be pro-relational and then learning the practices allowed him to become more pro-relational and really shed that tendency and that it can be done and it takes work. There's no, there's no way out of the journey of rewiring incident by incident for all of us. And I love that, that phrase rewiring incident by incident, that it, it really is those baby steps. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm wondering for you know how this work applies to people who are single or just how it can be applied to more personal, professional relationships, like into context outside of romantic, intimate partnership. Yes. Um, well, for single people, of which there's many that I work with and have been that way myself between relationships in the past, we always can look at our how our early childhood developmental trauma has been playing out in our, the history of our adult relationships and using this criteria to, to really clarify our vulnerabilities, particularly which of our insecure attachment styles we go to and how much we've experienced secure attachment in our choices and how much we really want, have tolerated being in tra- traumatic, you know, dynamics and then learning what we need to heal in ourselves, if we're single, any, anyone, um, to be more mindful. What is the criteria I need to be looking for in order to, when I date, as I date, make sure that I have at least some talking points and ways to explore if this person, what their history is with partners and if this person is interested in this secure attachment, secure love path with me. And to interview your partner, um, if you are dating, find out their trauma. Many of us have had substantial childhood and relationship trauma. And that's for me as a counselor is not my concern. It's what's the work you've done and what's the work you're going to do together. So some of the best parents, parenting was the main body of my work with my dissertation and a parenting center and people would come with a lot of trauma and I wouldn't worry they had trauma in their childhood. It's just how much work have they done? 
Are they helping each other heal rather than hurting each other and embedding further? And are they going to get professional help when they, you know, if they feel they're skidding in some way that could endanger the child or their relationship? So that includes, you know, the friends you choose. If you're single, are you going to um, choose friends that you feel the threat is low? That's more pro-relational secure attachment or where you're constantly being triggered and the, the work, if you have a choice, you know, the work situation, if your boss is intimidating, scary, your mind, you know, you're constantly afraid walking on eggshells or someone in your work culture, um, you're in friends where you're constantly traumatizing each other. You can let go of people. Part of healing yourself is saying, I'm outgrowing this need for trauma bonding or insecure bonding. And I actually am looking for, you know, all it takes is one or two go-to people in your life to feel when you're in distress, you're helping each other navigate life. It can be anyone. Sometimes it's a really good counselor that you can count. Of course, it's expensive. So you, you know, and they're not there at three in the morning and you have to fit in their schedule. So I'm not saying that's the replacement, but I do a lot of rewiring in my practice. I'm sure you do too with the family systems work of just being that unconditionally loving person who's, I see you, I hear you, I feel you, I understand you. And here, here's some ways to, you know, heal along. Yeah. I, I love that. Just expanding it out to those different areas and, and really looking at relationships in the workplace and with friends through, through that lens of, am I constantly being triggered? Do yeah. I not feel safe here? Do, do I not feel settled in myself? Yeah. As the primary, as the primary feeling, remember yeah. for we all are moody. We all can snip and snap and not be available. You know, it's the dominant feeling I'm in green with you and the most secure functioning relationships we are feeling safe to be vulnerable when we feel insecure with each other. It's not this, it's like, you're not aware. I'm not judging you, but I just need you to know, you know, when you don't call me back, it leaves me feeling really hurt. And I just want to understand, you know, if I'm personalizing that, are you upset with me or, you know, help me understand that. And then the person goes, I had no idea. I don't, you know, don't personalize it. You're like dear to me, but if you really need me, I'm so, I am a bit self-absorbed with work and projects. So just ping me and tell me you need to connect. You know, I didn't know you needed that, or that's not my need. So often if we don't share where we feel triggered with people we really care about, they do care. They do have empathy. Of course, how we share I mean, I could spend hours on that one. How we share is usually the culprit of why people can't care for us. Unless they're so self-absorbed, no matter what we do, they're just, they're so, they don't really, they're, they're, their inability to care is offline. But if we, if we want someone to care for us, we need to show up in a pro-relational way. If we put the person in red, in other words, we threaten them, we judge them, we criticize them, we, you know, put them down, they're going to get defensive and they're not going to be able to care so caring is a function of being able to feel, I feel safe to share my truth with you. And that's how love flows. As soon as the mind goes into fight or flight, the heart closes, that aperture of the heart. It's really hard to love when we're feeling defensive. So that's a that's part of the rewiring is learning how to share, to optimize. And no perfect, because that's where the quick repair, as quick as we can muster, is our safety net. If we trigger the person, if we trigger ourselves, if we create a kind of, you know, a, a, a reactivity where we're in, we're feeling threatened and reactive, mild, moderate, severe, what the power card we have is to repair it if the person's going to be open to repair it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the art and science of 
intimate, secure love, it sounds complex. It's, it's not really, um, in the beginning, it can feel that way, you know, to keep it simple is to really, you know, look at your own vulnerabilities, know your own attachment style. And if you're insecure, anxious, you know, be aware that if someone is more avoidant, when they walk out of the room, you're going to feel more anxious and you want to help them learn how to take space more carefully. And if they're more avoidant, you don't want to just go escalate and rage and rant at them because they're going to shut the door longer and firm because they're feeling flooded and overwhelmed. So you as the insecure anxious have to learn how to share your need for connection more heartfully, more mindfully. And those are just, those are the beginning steps. And to appreciate each other, love each other, affirm the good, keep that green pro-relational connection nurtured. It's like building cash, you know, emotional cash in the, in the relationship connection. So that when you trigger, it's not a big deal. It's like, ah, bad day, bad hour. In general, we're, you know, the foundation of connection is positive. So appreciation practices, you know, taking that time to really affirm each other, celebrate each other's wins, hold each other through difficult times, care that you've hurt the person, repair quickly. Those are always to keep the emotional bank account strong. And sometimes it's all really helpful. And I know we're, you'll share soon how people can learn more about this if they want to. But before we get there, I have one, one final um, question for you, which is just you as, as a woman, as a human being, what's your current growing edge in life? (laughs) Oh, that's a beautiful question. Um, Well, it's, it's learn, you know, continuing continuing to to stay vigilant when i'm in a state of distress for myself even if it's don't look at the online news first thing in the morning if it's going to trigger you and flavor the day do those meditation practices stay out of distress um you know ground myself in well-being so it's really caring for myself and watching especially now with all these delicate you know, external stress, stressors in life, keeping the life balance, making sure I nurture, make time to nurture my relationship with my partner, um, caring to repair with people that I feel I may not be caring for. The balance of self-care, caring for others, self-nourishment, um, looking for ways to actively give to release and relieve the suffering of others you know, out in the world, outside of my concentric circle, you know, activism work. Um, But I know that unless my nervous system feels nourished and balanced and my heart is open and my mind is quiet, I'm just not as effective in any aspect of life. (laughs) And so I definitely make sure that I'm listening to the state of my, my own being. And I am, I'm, doing things to keep that balance going and then looking how I can give to others in any given day. Some days, you know, it's more in myself and other days it's more in service to others. So that's my growing edge. I think it's a life practice to stay in loving brain as much as I can in heart because I feel better, much less everyone else benefits, including my children who are adults, but my clients, my friends, my partner, my own nervous system. I'm 66, so I'm very careful to keep myself 
nourished in a challenging and what what you're saying it sounds like you're making sure that you're staying in the green as much as possible as often as possible in relationship to life yes there's so much uncertainty out there yeah um, you know then there's these existential threats that we're all living with you know climate anxiety it's there you know Mm -hmm. or suffering everywhere in our neighborhoods in various ways so we have to keep ourselves well no one else can do it for us as adults and it's wonderful if we have a partner to help that's a grace and a blessing and our you know community um women friend men friends siblings relatives keep keep looking for you know someone to to co-regulate with when you're feeling overwhelmed because the brain can take so much and we can do so much ourselves we never outgrow that need to be co-regulated just remember that and to be important to someone when we're feeling overwhelmed. And how can listeners learn more about you or take this further if they want to? They can contact me. My website, confusedaboutlove.com. Carista at confusedaboutlove.com is my email. I prefer people email me. Um, I do work with people online all over the world, and my practice is quite full, but it goes through some cycles and some openings. Um, I also have courses on on my website, the Healing Narcissism and Codependency course. It's an audio course, 10-week course. You can buy it the first three weeks, seven, then the second seven weeks are all together. It's reasonably priced. And I have another course called The Five Keys to, to Secure and Passionate Love. It's an audio course. It's rather old. It's going to be reduced real soon. And I'm about to... Uh, in the next month, post my new course, Confused About Love, Get Clear, Be wise, Feel Secure, Be Get Clear, Be Wise, Feel Secure, <laughs> that I just finished a four-week online course about all these principles that I just did with a group of people. That'll be ready soon, the video course. Great. And I'll put the link to your website in the show notes. Yes. There's lots of great attachment specialists out there. Um you know, if you feel you can also Google in your area of family systems work you know, as well, um, developmental trauma, just make sure it's someone that really understands attachment and rewiring. Thank you so much for being with us today and all the wisdom that you shared and the service that you're providing so many people. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. And just remember, you can heal. You just need to find the right support and do the inner work. You can be free of a lot of the the conditioning. Great words to leave with. Yes. Thank Thank you. you. Bye. Thank you for being here today. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd be very grateful if you could take a moment to please rate and review this podcast on iTunes. That is the best way to support me in continuing on with this podcast and also to support other women in finding this, other women who may find this beneficial for their own lives. Also, don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And if you're not already signed up for my newsletter, Monthly Insights, which I've been sending out now for almost 20 years... I welcome you to join me and a community of like-hearted women from around the world there. You can subscribe at my website, saraavonstover.com.
Until next time, I'm sending you my heartfelt support.